0: Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, I talk to filmmaker Judd Apatow. He's best known as a Hollywood writer and director of comedies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin and Knocked Up. But now he's directed a two-part HBO documentary called The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling. The comedian Gary Shandling was known for two groundbreaking TV series, one called It's Gary Shandling Show and the other The Larry Sanders Show. Judd's documentary charts the ups and downs of Shandling's career and his search for meaning. Shandling specialized in a self-deprecating humor that comes through in his first appearance on The Tonight Show in 1981. How many of you have been on that ride It's a Small World at Disneyland? <laughs> Anybody scared on that ride? <laughs> Just me, great. Uh, the worst thing about that ride is for the rest of your life in your head, you hear that darn song, don't you? <laughs> for the rest of your life, it's a small world. Na, 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 na. Give me a break, all right? Then I went on Pirates of the Caribbean. I'm home cleaning my house. Best ride, isn't it? But I'm home cleaning my house and I'm going, yo ho yo ho na 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 na. I'm making love and I'm going yo ho yo ho na 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 na. And the girl's going, it's a small world now. Shanling was an important mentor to Judd. In the documentary, Judd interviews Shanling's other colleagues, friends, and girlfriends to offer a complicated portrait. Here's Jim Carrey. I thought of Gary as somebody who told an audience, you're all right, because I have all these problems. Don't worry, folks, you're gonna feel good by comparison when I leave the stage, <laughs> only he did it in a way that was so incredibly clever that you had to respect him at the same time. And that's the key to a great comic, is that you know he's more screwed up than anyone in the crowd, and yet, There's this intellect that goes along with it. And always good, whatever he did. Shanling died in 2016, and Judd started work on the documentary soon after. He doesn't shy away from the darker moments of Shanling's life, including his acrimonious breakup with his longtime manager, Brad Gray. This isn't Judd's first documentary. He previously made an ESPN 30 for 30 called Doc and Daryl, about the legendary baseball players for the New York Mets. He also directed the documentary May at Last about the North Carolina musicians, the Avett brothers. Judd says he's keen to make more documentaries.
1: I love it. I, I, I have to say my biggest concern is I love it so much more than everything else I'm doing. <laughs> and I, I have to figure out how, how to, to do more of it while being able to feed my children. I reached Judd by Skype at
0: his office in Los Angeles. I started by asking what Gary Shanling meant to his
1: career. He meant everything to my career. I I met him when I was 16 years old. I interviewed him for my high school radio station. He had just hosted The Tonight Show for the first time, and I had created an interview show uh, back in 1983, 84, where I interviewed... Comedians And I just did it because I wanted to be a comedian. I was looking for a way to meet them. I was looking for a way to get advice. And it was a little bit of a scam. And back then, no one wanted to talk to comedians. There were no podcasts. There was no internet. So you could get them to talk to you because their publicists always wanted to look like they were doing something. (laughs) And no one wanted to talk to them. So I wouldn't say it was a high school radio station. I would just say it was a radio station in New York. And I had this great interview with him. And he was hilarious and very sweet. And he talked about his dreams for his future. And oddly, he accomplished all the goals he laid out. And then many years later, when I was in my early 20s, I was a comedian and I was writing jokes for other comedians and I heard he needed jokes for the Grammys and I said I'd love to do it and I didn't hear from him for many months and then I was uh, at the Dallas Improv, it was the first day of the Gulf War in 1991 and I got a call, Gary needs jokes. Uh, So I stayed up all night writing jokes for Gary and he, he liked them and we became friends.
0: And he gave you a big directing break uh, on the Larry Sanders show. And I mean, I take it that he was a a real important mentor
1: to you. He I mean, he was the mentor to me. You have to imagine I'm just a knucklehead kid who dreams of uh, writing and being in show business. I, I was aware that you could write jokes for comics and no other comedians that I was friends with wanted to write jokes for other people. I needed money to pay my rent. So if I could pick up a couple hundred bucks a week writing jokes, I was game. The people I was friends with, like Adam Sandler, who I lived with at the time, he thought, I'm gonna be a star. I'm not writing jokes for other people. <laughs> that, that would be the weirdest thing ever to do. I didn't have as much confidence in my uh, star-like qualities. Uh, so that was my dream. So to get that opportunity with Gary on the Grammys was a big deal. I later, uh, you know, I wrote for Roseanne Arnold and Tom Arnold uh, in in those days. And then for Jim Carrey, I wrote a special uh, for Dennis Miller. It was the pregame show for the HBO showing of Paul Simon live in Central Park. And, <laughs> and that was a type of work that I was doing. Then, you know, I created the Ben Stiller show with Ben, which was a sketch show on Fox. And we were canceled very quickly. And Gary said to me, why don't you come right for The Larry Sanders Show. And that was the moment when he really became my mentor because he said, you're going to learn a lot. He didn't say, you're going to be very helpful to me. <laughs> he said, you're going to learn a lot. And then during the last season, he asked me to co-run the show uh, with uh, Adam Resnick. And he asked me to direct. And that's the first time I ever directed. And he came to set almost every moment and basically... He probably just directed it and just put my name on it when I think back on it. (laughs) So, I mean, you're not the
0: only person who experienced this in in your film. Sacha Baron Cohen and Jon Favreau and others talk about his mentorship uh, to them. Well, what do you think motivated him as a mentor?
1: Uh, It's a very interesting question. He had a profound experience when he was young. He he wrote jokes for George Carlin. George Carlin didn't ask for jokes. He just wrote some routines for George Carlin. I assume this was about 1970, right around the time when George Carlin uh, had switched from being you know, suit and tie guy ah. to a hippie comedian. He was in a club, not some enormous club, but he was playing a club in Arizona. And Gary drove uh, several hours to show him these jokes. And George Carlin uh, talked to him at the bar after the show and said, I'll read him. Come back tomorrow. And it was a several-hour drive for Gary to go to this club. So he drives home, then he comes back the next day. And George Carlin has them all laid out. And he had notated which jokes he thought were good. And he said to Gary, I don't buy jokes, but there's a good joke on every page here. So if you want to be in comedy, I think you're talented. I think you should pursue it. Now, Gary just jumped in the car <laughs> not that far after that and moved to Los Angeles and, and said, I'm going to try to figure out how to get into, into comedy. And that, I think, was such an important experience to him that maybe on some level he thought, well, that's what people do. You, you succeed and you help people. And I never thought when I uh, uh, have done that, that it was from Gary but I think it imprinted on me. Oh, that's what nice people do. Ah. You you share your wisdom with people. And and it's fun. It's fun. <laughs> the energy of young people who are excited to break in, who have ideas and stories and wounds. That's the most exciting part of creativity. You know, that, that moment when people have a lot to say. The Beatles made all their great records, you know, by the time they were 30 years old or something like that. And so... It's 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 a very exciting time to collaborate with people, and I think he enjoyed that as well.
0: I remember I had a close mentor in my late teens, early twenties, and, and there came a point in which I had to sort of separate myself from him. I had to like, you know decide what were the characteristics that were individual to me versus what I'd inherited from him. And I, I wonder if you ever went through anything similar, like you know a point which you had to establish your own identity from your mentor.
1: I, I did have to go through that with, uh, with a lot of different people. And I think people have had to go through that with me hmm. where I've worked with them. And then at some point they think I have my own visions and dreams and I don't need Judd around anymore. Uh, and, you know, For me, I worked at the Larry Sanders show on and off for five years. In that time, I also made uh, the movie The Cable Guy. I was a producer and did some rewrites on. I made a movie uh, called Heavyweights. Uh, which Ben Stiller was in, and and Paul Feig actually was in it. Steve Brill wrote it with me and and directed it. So I would go back and forth between the show and movies, but I hadn't figured out my voice. And the thing I, I learned from Gary was that it's all about figuring out who you are and digging as deep as you can go into your psyche to figure out what you want to express about yourself. And then when the show ended, I... I was talking to my friend Paul Feig, and one day he handed me the script for Freaks and Geeks. And I realized that I would have a lot to contribute to a show like this, because I I also had a lot of stories about high school and a lot of feelings about being young and that time. So that was the first time I wrote from a very personal place with Paul. And I think everything I learned about writing from Gary, I tried to preach to Paul Uh, everything about truth and humor and digging deep and compassion and love. So in my head, I I would play this trick with myself, which was I pretended we were still making the Larry Sanders show. I didn't say it to anyone, but it helped me figure out the tone. I just thought if we could capture the tone of the Larry Sanders show in a high school, it would be incredible. Hmm. And if we could, you know, be that three-dimensional and explore the human condition in the same way. And I think that's why I was helpful as, as a writer and a director and a producer there. And that was all inspired by Gary. But it was also a breaking away from Gary, which is now we're not going to do uh, you know, a satire of a talk show. And you know, Gary's issues, uh, it's going to be more about the issues of young people, you know Paul Feig's issues primarily. But I was able to also write about my parents' divorce and things like that. You know, my loneliness as a child, there's a a sequence where Martin Starr, who played Bill, is watching Gary Shandling on the Dinah Shore show, and he's been left home alone again. Uh Uh-huh. And that's what he does to cheer himself up. He eats grilled cheese sandwiches and Entenmann's cake and a glass of milk, and he watches talk shows, and he he loves the comedians. So that I, I made as a salute to Gary in a way, but it was also very personal. It was set to a Who song, I'm One by The Who which was my my band at the time. And when it was done, Jake Kasdan uh, said to me, he was a producer and director on the show, that's the most personal thing you've ever done, and that's the best thing you've ever done. And I thought, oh, that's, this is a sign. I need to follow this muse. And in a way, that was a bit of a breaking away from Gary. Okay, what what are my stories? Who am I?
0: So Gary Shandling died in March 2016, when did you get the idea to do this
1: i was asked to put together his memorial service and i was so sad uh at the time it, it really blew me away when gary died i didn't see it coming in any way we had been talking a lot in in, in the last month or two and so i threw myself into putting the memorial together there were a thousand people there at the wilshire Ebell theater Adam Sandler uh, sang uh, Give Me Love, the George Harrison song. Ryan Adams performs, who was one of Gary's favorite artists. Uh, Mark uh, Everett from the Eels sang the song It's a Motherfucker, which is one of the saddest <laughs> songs I've ever heard in my life. We had you know, 10 or 11 amazing speakers, and then I edited together five or six video packages, mm. little mini documentaries about Gary. And while I was editing them, they were very powerful. I I just began to read some of his journals and was including them in a little booklet I put together for the memorial. And it became clear to me there's a real story to tell here. I also think I didn't want to let go of Gary and the idea of focusing on his life. uh, And the lessons that I could learn from his life would be something that uh, I I, I would want to do. Mm.
0: So uh, tell me about those journals. How you got a hold of them, and what
1: they revealed to you. You know, there were a few of us who were cleaning out Gary's house. We had some awareness that he kept journals, and you know, I, I started uh, you know looking at them in order to scan some pages to put in a memorial booklet. I think we all felt a little weird about: do we look at these? Do we not look at these? A friend of mine made a great documentary on the subject, Douglas Block, is is it called 51 Birch Street? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, which is about his his uh, mother's journals. mother passing away. Yeah. His mother passes away and she leaves journals and he debates whether or not he should read them and he learns what her interior life was like and it's a fantastic documentary. Uh, so I was aware of the issues. Do you read, do you not read? But I also knew that Gary was considering making a series or a documentary about the journals. He had already shot some test footage, and he, he wanted to use them. Uh, I felt that was a kind of permission since he had begun that project. And what I learned was he was an even better person than I thought he was. Uh, you know, I always admired him. I saw that he was struggling at times for different reasons, but it was pretty remarkable to read the journals and and realize that, you know, for thirty years, he mainly wrote about how can I live in love? How can I connect with people? Uh, how can I let go of my attachments and my desire? How can I become Gary, basically? And I thought, wow, it's just so beautiful that that was his intention, consistently, decade after decade, even when he was having a hard time, even when, he was in lawsuits even when he was having health problems. His his main priority was uh, to find himself and to be a, a kinder person. Hmm. And I, I found that to be very moving.
0: So one of the big crucibles in his life that your film goes into is his relationship with his manager, longtime manager, Brad Gray. At some point he felt betrayed by Gray. Uh, felt that Gray was taking too much money from the Larry Sanders show and launched this lawsuit, a $100 million lawsuit against Brad Gray. I wonder what your perception of that was at at the time.
1: At the time, it was very upsetting uh, because Gary was so upset and he felt so betrayed. I remember him telling me, I asked to see my contracts and he refused to send them to me. That really bothered Gary. They were his contracts, and it's his and manager. Knew, <laughs> and it's his manager, and he knew if he doesn't want me to read my own contracts, there's there's a there's a problem here. Also, someone told Gary that it was inappropriate for Brad Gray to have encouraged Gary to not have his own lawyer and to only use his lawyer. And at the time, it might have been expressed to him as a way to save money, or there's no reason to do it, but it certainly was in the spirit of, I'm here for you. You know, you, you don't need to worry about whether or not these uh, contracts are going to be appropriate. And that was, I think, the big breaking of, of trust for Gary. When he asked for the contracts, Brad dropped him as a client. And that was, uh, I think, the beginning of it getting ugly. So Gary at some point, decided there was no way to resolve this without filing this lawsuit. And, you know, when you file a lawsuit for $100 million, it's certainly a a big deal. Gary was very surprised that the response would be that his reputation would be attacked. He was very naive. He he didn't really put together that, you know, when you file a lawsuit like that, you're attacking someone's reputation and the response will probably be they will attack your reputation.
0: Well, you know, uh, I mean, there's a point in the film where I was, you know, trying to imagine it from both sides and well, maybe it's more complicated. But then it came out that that Gary was being followed and being wiretapped by the private detective, Anthony Pelicano, uh, uh, which I take it was part of that uh, lawsuit. Uh, even though there, there, there is a kind of denial from Brad Gray in uh, that that you attribute in, in in the film. But I mean, are, are we right to assume that uh, that that was tied up in that lawsuit?
1: I think for certain clients of Anthony Pelicano, there was some sort of paper trail or some way they were able to connect that they hired Anthony Pellicano. Uh, the director John McTiernan, who directed Die Hard, hired him and Anthony Pelicano uh, bugged the the phone of a producer he was in conflict with, and John McTiernan went to jail for uh, a year or almost a wow. year. There wasn't the paperwork or the proof that Brad Gray and Burt Fields asked Anthony Pelicano to tap Gary's phone. One would assume that uh that's what happened because it's the only conflict gary was in at the time and Birdfields used anthony pelicano all of the time and this is the kind of work that he did but they certainly have deniability because there is no direct proof that they said anthony we want you to bug gary Shanling's phone no. there's no work order <laughs> and so Can we say maybe Anthony Pelicano did it on his own and no one asked him to? I guess that's within the realm of possibility. It does not seem likely that that happened. And Gary said oftentimes when they went to court or when they were dealing with a lawsuit, the other side seemed to know what they were going to do before they did it. So I think that both of them may have escaped uh, very serious legal problems just because Anthony Pelicano... Uh, did not keep the types of records which connected his, uh, right. his uh, clients from, uh, you know, from being uh, vulnerable to being prosecuted for this. But it certainly affected Gary's life because, you know, if you're a neurotic person and a sensitive person and your worst fears are co- confirmed, it, it makes you not trust the world. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it makes you feel like, wait, everything bad I think might be happening – might be happening. And then a lot of people said they felt like it It changed Gary.
0: Last October, the comedy writer Janice Hirsch published an article about working in the writer's room of It's Gary Shanling Show, where she had a demoralizing Me Too experience. Hirsch was the only woman writer on the show. She describes that one day in the mid-1980s, she was sitting in Shanling's office with him and other writers. One of the actors pulled a vulgar prank by draping his penis on her shoulder. It made everyone laugh but her. A day or two later, she says, the show's producer Brad Gray suggested she quit. She wrote that article in October. Then in March, she wrote a follow-up piece about watching The Zen Diaries of Gary Shanling. She praised Judd for directing the film without rose-colored glasses, but lamented that the Shanling he knew was different from the one she had experienced. You can find links to her articles in our show notes. I asked Judd how he responded when Janice Hirsch published her first article. Uh,
1: Well, I instantly called her, which is just how I usually handle these things, is to just directly uh, seek to understand what happened because, you know, we were basically done with the documentary at that time. And I wanted to make sure uh, that I didn't need to open it up and uh, include this. She entered uh, an environment which was probably toxic. Certainly a lot of writers rooms, especially in that era, uh, were more toxic than they are today, but plenty are today for sure. I assume that that was early in the show. And one assumes she dealt with two things simultaneously. One is Gary uh, fired a lot of writers A lot of writers very quickly a lot of the great writers of all time at one point or another worked or ran one of his tv shows so that was a painful thing for a lot of people because gary just wouldn't connect with someone and he would make them disappear it's a long list of people and when he didn't connect he you know he might be he might not be pleasant he might just not talk much to a writer that he wasn't uh feeling it with and or he might be super nice to their face and suddenly they disappear it it was an area that he was terrible in Uh, running writing staffs He it it was not something that he he learned how to do i don't think through his entire career in fact when i ran the last season he called me up and and, and begged me to do it. And I said, Gary, I really want to remain friends with you more than I want to work on this show. Please, let's figure out a way for me not to wind up on that list. So it was difficult from the beginning, and I think that she experienced that. Secondly, I think uh, you know, there was an era, which maybe is only beginning to end now, where people did things like that and they thought it was funny and they didn't realize how demeaning it was I guess some people might have realized how demeaning it was and, and not cared. But there's there certainly was a lot of awful uh, behavior from men in writers' rooms. And usually those writers' rooms, especially at that time, only had one woman or, or two women. And at, at, at places like that show and certainly Saturday Night Live, you would hear stories of them being uh, mistreated. So, uh, you know, I have a lot of compassion for her. Having to go through that, and she's one of the legends in our business, one of the original National Lampoon writers and Lemmings, and uh, you know, I felt terrible. I called her, and, and she said that it wasn't something that she blamed on Gary. I think it was an actor who who did it, um, but certainly you know, fish rots from the head. If 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 Gary creates an environment where anyone thinks they can do that or they're not held accountable, you know, it's his responsibility. Yeah.
0: so I mean, you've been uh, really outspoken around uh, Me Too and uh, and Time's Up. And I wonder from your perception in Hollywood right now, you know, where we're at is is do you see meaningful change taking place in your industry?
1: I think that there is a lot of meaningful uh, change taking place. I'm not sure exactly uh, how we'll feel about the progress we've made in five years. I think a, a you know a moment like this you know creates a lot of fear from people who might normally act out in terrible ways. So that's never happened before. There's never been a time in our industry where harassers thought, "Oh no, I could get in trouble." And I think the corporate entities feel like they are responsible now in a way that they might not have in the past. We've always had, you know, sexual harassment seminars and things like that, but I don't think that uh, people felt like if they went like they were to the paying attention. Of, or... Uh, yeah, or, or that if you if you complain that people were going to take it very seriously, uh, in the way they probably are doing now, you know, our industry is probably a little easier to change than every other industry. We're a small industry, ultimately, uh, in terms of hard uh, harassment. There's much larger issues which have to do with uh, how people are hired, how people get positions of power, you know, who makes the choices about who gets hired. Uh, there's not a lot of equality between men and women in those areas. And, you know, hopefully that will, will change because when there's more female executives, uh, I, I think that solves a lot of these problems.
0: Watching the film about Gary Shandling, uh, there's a lot of you know questions about the the meaning of work and the meaning uh, of life. Just watching it, you can't help but reflect on those things. I gotta imagine that making it over several months must have been uh, even more intense. And uh, and I wonder what you took away from that experience of thinking about these deep questions.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a long time, because I I took a year just looking for the material to edit with, and then uh, my editor, Joe Beschenkovsky, who's just one of the greats, he he did the movie Jane, and uh, Montage of Heck, the Kurt Cobain documentary, Mm. and worked on the This American Life series. Mm. Uh, Also, my uh, producer was Michael Bonfiglio, who I co-directed the Avid Brothers documentary, Make It Last With, and the... um, 30 for 30 about Daryl Strawberry and so I good and so I had all this uh, support Um, but for me I think the most important thing I took from it was that you have to remain in tune with these questions it's very easy to live your life unconsciously and you know Gary thought a lot about love and connection and obstacles to love and connection. But one thing I learned through reading the diaries was, you know, it's a it's 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 daily work to think about your place in the universe, your intentions, your goals, how you want to treat people, what you what you make of reality, what you make of this existence. And the thing I ultimately take from it, you know, is a simplicity uh, of the message that we got when we talked to Ram Das. Uh, you know, I, I was doing an interview with him for his podcast and I said to Gary, why don't you come? I I, I know you're interested in this kind of thing. And so we talked to him for about 45 minutes and in that interview, he, you know, he said it's all about loving awareness and it's all about living in your heart, not in your head. And for me, that's basically, you know, that's, that's the meaning of life right there. So the key is, can you remind yourself of it every day and, and in every moment?
0: So much of your work has been about adolescence or delayed adolescence, uh, and I wonder now that you've turned fifty, if you're, you know, thinking differently, or if you, you know, feel a different stage of life is going to become more prominent in your work.
1: I think so. I think that this documentary was a big part of it. You know, through exploring Gary's life, I was able to talk about. Everything in life, the, the you know, you know, the meaning of life, you know, what you know, what is it? I, and and for, for me, I thought, you know, we're born. Our parents do the best job they can do with how they were raised. They screw us up. We try to succeed in spite of how much they screwed us up. At some point, we try to heal from uh, all these wounds that we we've had, and we try to be happy, evolving. People, and and that's that's it. You know, can we learn something from this journey? And I've written a lot about young people, coming of age stories. You know, it's weird because I've made movies about high school kids, college, the TV show about college kids, TV show about high school kids. Uh, you know, movies about the end of high school. You know, movies about getting someone pregnant, about being married, about being young in marriage, about being middle-aged in marriage. I've made a movie about comedy and and disease and thinking you're gonna die, and I think that Gary is part of that continuum of my own exploration of just the total journey of being a person, and this is the first time the journey really is about the entire journey, an immersive experience in in a complete life and what someone tried to do and what lessons we can take from his journey you know i went to gary's cremation which is a really difficult intense experience it, it was very moving but you know it ripped you ripped me as raw as uh, as i can be ripped and i thought you know as it was happening i thought First, Gary would find this hysterical how unpleasant this is. <laughs> he would he would laugh at the look on my face right now. And secondly, that he would want me to learn whatever lesson there is to learn from his life. That would be the best use of his life. If his life could make anybody evolve and be happier or be kinder to someone else, then take it. Take it for whatever it's, it's worth. And that's what I try to do with this documentary. And in a way, it's what I'm trying to do with everything that I do. Uh, I'm, I'm exploring the way we behave. And hopefully there's some, you know, some signs on, on ways we might be able to do it better.
0: Clearly, you've got a real love of documentary films and, uh, and an interest and a wide breadth of of, of watching them. Um, I, I wonder if uh, you see yourself getting involved more in documentary filmmaking or you're supporting other documentary filmmakers, uh, you know, the way you have with so many fiction filmmakers.
1: I've always been a big fan of documentaries. I didn't know how to get into it, and I, I, I wasn't even sure I ever would. You know, then the 30 for 30 people said we'd love for you to do a documentary for us And I had met Michael Bonfiglio when he directed the episode of Iconoclasts that I, I Did with Lena Dunham and I immediately thought this is a very special person I, I, I'm also friends with Ira Glass and have admired what he does uh, for a very long time, but I, I didn't know how I would ever get involved So the experience of making the 30 for 30 was my college education. I learned so much from, from Michael. And then we did the Avid brothers documentary, uh, and I love it. I, I, I have to say my biggest concern is I love it so much more than everything else I'm doing (laughs) and I, I have to figure out how, how to, to do more of it while being able to feed my children. Uh, but. I definitely will continue to make documentaries. I I'm trying to figure out, you know, what the next possible subject will be. And it and I enjoy the filmmaking of it. I, I, I like that you have all of this material and just like a, a movie that I make that's scripted, I'm trying to figure out you know, what is the story, what's pulling you through here. Uh, You know, I worked with my same composer, Mike Andrews, who did such a beautiful job on the movie. And and he did, you know, Bridesmaids and a whole bunch of other movies with us. So I treated it like a a movie. So they feel very similar, except you're dealing with the the story and the footage that already exists. But also, I'm a hoarder. So anytime (laughs) I can get into a subject and try to find every single thing that exists on it, it makes some part of my hoarding personality happy feels justified you you know i had footage that i shot in uh, uh, 1992 or 3 of gary uh building his house he was building his dream house and he knew that he would get in so many fights with his contractors and his architects that if we shot the whole process it it would be a very funny hbo special (laughs) we only shot for a few days because he got busy making the larry sanders show But when we were putting the documentary together, I was so proud that I kept all the high eight tapes from the early 90s. And I I said to my wife, this is why hoarding is so important.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much for uh, taking the time.
1: I'm uh, really looking forward to your future documentaries. Well, thank you for having me uh, on the podcast. I love this podcast and uh, it's an honor to be here.
0: I want to thank Judd Apatow for speaking with me. His two-part series, The Zen Diaries of Gary Shanling, is now streaming on HBO. Thanks to our team, series producer Sarah Modo, sound mixer Tom Micah, and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. I invite you to listen to our short-form podcast, Documentary of the Week, from WNYC. You'll find over 160 documentary recommendations. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.